Clay. Welcome to our Love You Blue Oilers special. We've had so many fun memories over our first couple of years reminiscing about the Oilers with legendary players and some of the media from that time that I decided to put it all together for you. And before this is over with, you'll hear from Dan Pastorini, Elvin Bethay, Robert Brazil, William Fuller, Spencer Tillman, John McClain, former Oiler voice Tom Franklin, Dale Robertson, Kenny Hand, and Jerry Truppiano. We'll start off with the Love You Blue era and then spread out to Jerry Glanville's stories and the Jack Pardee years. Let's start off with Dan Pastorini. I caught up with him right before the Bum Phillips Opera opened. Can you give me a bum story about how he changed the Oilers' atmosphere in the locker room and maybe just something about his life? From day one, he was one of the simplest people to talk to, and he had such a great outlook on life, a very simple approach to life. And sometimes, you know, the obvious stares you in the face and we don't see it for the, you know, the forest or the trees or whatever it is. And anyway, he just, he took charge when he came in and he just got us all together. And he said, look, he said, I want you guys to get to know the players that you don't normally hang around with. He said, I want you to become friends. With them. I want you to learn about their family. He said, I want you to learn about every player in this room. He said, because, your family, you'll protect more than you'll protect teammates. And he said, I want this to be a family atmosphere. And evidence of that fact is when I sent these invitations out for this opera, I mean, everybody chuckled, but everybody's showing up except for two players that they had previous commitments they couldn't get out of. And that was Curly Culp and Elvin Bethay. But everybody is showing up to support Bum. He created an incredible family atmosphere. And you guys had this amazing relationship with the fans Although it wasn't always that way for you. I know early in your career, you had your car vandalized. There were some rough times before Bum came along. But beyond just winning, what do you think helped you guys connect so much with the people of Houston? And maybe tell us what you'd suggest to the Texans players or management that might help their connection with the fans, if you can. Perseverance. You just can't let the petty stuff get in the way. You just have to keep your focus. You know, keep working together. The most important people are the, the team. And, uh, you know, the fans came around. The fans, uh, winning creates a, a great atmosphere in the city. And once Bunk started turning that around and, and people saw this and saw the work ethic and saw the effort from all the players, um, you know, they turned around too. But it's something you have to earn. And uh, the players here, you know, I don't know. It's it, They've had a tough go. Um, I, I, I hate to see it because the uh, Bob McNair is such a good man, uh, and uh, he was he was the first one to step up and be our title sponsor for this event. And you just like to see good things happen to good people. But I I think he's got a good organization. I think they just have you know some little pieces they need fixing, and once they get them fixed, you know I think they'll be um, they'll be a contender, no question. You look at a guy like J.J. Watt, he seems to have it figured about figured out how to connect with with uh, fans and th- that sort of thing. Why don't more players take his lead? Why don't we see more players doing what he's doing? That's a very good question. Um, he's, he's a prime example of the way you play the game and the way you treat the fans and the way you live your life. He walks the talk and he, and he, you know, he, he performs. He's a guy that uh, everybody should look up to, no question about it. I mean, I admire the guy. I had a chance, just a chance meeting with him one time when I went over to practice. And I went up to introduce myself. He's all, oh, I know who you are, Mr. Pastorini. He's all Mr. Pastorini, which really made me feel old. But he um very respectful. He knows the history of the game. You know, he's he's one of these guys that's gonna he's gonna give you his best from the first play to the last play. That's a cohesiveness that they don't quite have over there yet. But once they get that, 
once they all work like he does, then you'll see a difference in that team. Let me ask you about Ryan Mallett because you're big-armed, quarterback, strong guy like Mallett is. That's what you were known for. What are you seeing from him? Do you think he uh, he's a guy that can turn into something? Well, I tell you what, I uh, I personally my favorite is Savage. Uh, I've seen him perform, and I, I wish he's gotten wish he'd have gotten a chance to play with the first teamers uh, on uh, some of the games in preseason. Ryan's got uh, you know all the arm strength in the world. Hoyer's got the leadership, so Ryan needs to kind of get that leadership that Hoyer has. It's tough playing the position, looking over your shoulder all the time, knowing that if you have a bad game, you know, you're you're suspect of being pulled out. I mean, I went through that with Lynn Dickey in the early years. Consequently, we didn't have very very good success in the early years. We had back-to-back one and 13 seats. But you can't play the position looking over your shoulder, worrying about who's going to take you job. A lot of people thought I was a tough player. I wasn't a tough player. I was a player that just didn't want to release my job or relinquish my job to someone else due to injury. People can find your biography, Taking Flack. It's still online at your website, taking-flack.com. And as I mentioned to you the other day, it's the best sports bio I've ever read. If they made a movie about your life, which I hope they will, I don't think people would believe it. It's so amazing. In the book, you said your dad played pro baseball for the San Francisco Mission Reds with Joe DiMaggio. Did he tell you much about playing with DiMaggio? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, man. He told me. He did, it wasn't professional baseball. It was just kind of kind of semi-pro baseball. You know, I think they got like five bucks a game or something. And, uh, yeah, he played with DiMaggio. He played with Lefty O'Doul. He played with all these great players. And he had an opportunity to play for the Yankees. My grandparents are first-generation Italian. And uh, he was only like 18 at the time when he was discovered. My grandmother was adamant. She said, no, my son's going to get an honest job. He's not going to be a bum. Because back then, a lot of the ball players were looked at as bums. They couldn't do anything else but play baseball. So he broke my dad's heart. He kept playing. He's a butcher by trade. And uh, about nine years later, the same scout discovers him again. He came up to the past training. That name's familiar. He said, how old are you? And my dad lied to him. He's 21. He goes, no, he says, I remember you now. He said, uh, no, he said, you're too old to play. So his big wish was to have one of his sons play football or play play professional sports, have the opportunity that he didn't. So he was very encouraging in my lifetime, very supportive, uh, never pushed me, just was always there for my game. He'd travel some 120 miles to go to a game. So that kind of support is kind of hard to miss. I had a lot of a great guidance from a, a great man who was very dear to me. Yeah, and you grew up with real country atmosphere in, in California. It was very reminiscent of Texas. You, you, your dad owned a restaurant called the Longhorn Cafe, and you, you, yeah. you were in the the rodeo as well. I remember that. You had a, a little bit of rodeo. It was almost like you were you were destined to, to play in Texas at one point. <laughs> it sounded like, you know, you're right. I mean, with the, you know, Pastorini's Longhorn Club and Cafe, you can't miss. That's all Texas. But he was, a, he was a butcher by trade and then went up there and took his life savings and built a restaurant in a very small community uh, with the hopes that it would, you know, prosper. But went through some tough times up there. Originally, they had gambling, and he had a little back room with a gambling table. But uh, he, uh, the feds came in and shut it down six months after he opened up. So he was just stuck in this little one-horse town all those years. So he tried to get creative, and he had a lot of friends. He was a horseman himself. He had a lot of friends that were cowboys. And they built the arena themselves by hand. My, my grandfather was a carpenter by trade my father was pretty pretty good at everything he could he was a carpenter he was a butcher he was a good chef he was everything 
and they built a little arena out there to attract people to come in and Saturdays and Sundays it, it attracted people and it built his business up. So he, uh, he was very creative. He was very, he was a horse trader. That's for sure. And if people don't remember, you had this incredible arm. There was this quarterback skills contest on ABC with Bradshaw and Staubach and Greasy. And you threw the ball 87 yards in the air. You also played against some of the all-time great quarterbacks. Which quarterback from your era would you want leading your team? And do you have a personal all-time favorite to watch just from any era? Well, you know, naturally, Johnny Unitas and uh, Bart Starr were my heroes. Um, growing up as a kid, I liked John Brody because I was you know, in California. I watched him play for the 49ers for many years. Roman Gabriel was the guy that I uh, admired from the Los Angeles Rams. But, um, you know, those are the guys, those are my, kind of my contemporaries a little bit before me, but I, I had the chance to play against most of them. And, uh, it was, it was kind of strange feeling lining up across the field when you look across the field and you see your, your heroes and, you're you're wondering am I worthy to be here? But uh, it was a it was a great opportunity. I was blessed to have it and thankful I had it. One of my favorite quotes from Love You Blue is NFL Films co-founder Steve Sable said it was like most great events. Those who were there will never forget, and those who weren't will never quite understand. When I hear that quote, I think of those great pep rallies in the dome, just unforgettable. For those who weren't. There, can you describe the scene in 1978 after you guys lose in the freezing rain in Pittsburgh? It's this amazing deal because it wasn't as though you won the Super Bowl or even lost in a nail-biter. This was trouncing in the AFC Championship game, yet you landed Intercontinental. And can you describe that scene once you got home? Well, it wasn't only in just 1978. It was in 1979, again, when we lost to the Steelers up there under the heartbreaking play that Mike Renfro's catch wasn't wasn't the touchdown. But what people don't understand, sure, they saw the, the end result with all the people in the Astrodome. But when we walked through the airport at Intercontinental, you couldn't, there, there was an aisle way of about four feet where we could just walk down the, the aisles. People were five and ten deep in the terminal. The buses were outside, and we drove outside. People were parked along uh, the uh, JFK Boulevard going into the airport, all the way down JFK Boulevard, all the way down the Beltway, all the way down 45. There wasn't a car going in either direction, with the exception of our motorcade of two buses and a couple limos and a police motorcade, a police escort. And there had to be 300 to 400,000 people out there on the streets honking their horns and, and cheering us going down the freeways both years. And then in 79, the, the people in the Dome, I think, were about 30,000 more than, than original in 1978. But it was, that was, that was love you blue. That's what Bum Phillips created. He created this love you blue at atmosphere where he not only made a team play together as a family, but he enveloped the whole city to play together as a family. And, uh, there's not a person today that doesn't, that's alive. that doesn't remember that time. And, uh, the respect that they have for Bum Phillips. Yeah, I, th I think of the 78 one because I'm figuring that's the one where you're just most shocked because you had no idea what to expect. But yeah, both years, it was incredible. And of course, the kick the door down and se that happened in 79, Bum's great quote. Uh, in, in the bio, uh, Taking Flack, 
It's named because you were the guinea pig for the flak jacket. You took some flak as well, you know, as a quarterback. But it was that's what what I think the title comes from, which became that became pretty much standard in the NFL. You said you had seventy five broken bones. You estimated twelve concussions. If you knew what you put your body through, like the kids know now, do you think you still would have become a pro football player? I'm thinking you might have just stuck to drag racing, Dan. <laughs> it sounds safer. What? Yeah, it, it was a lot safer, I think. The funny part about it was I did have uh, the uh, flak jacket made for me to play with because I had I had three broken ribs that I played most of the end of the season with at 78. And uh, that became standard equipment on the players uh, pretty much using it today. But uh, Byron Donzies, the inventor of the flak jacket, walked in and into the, hotel, the hospital room that I was in. He had a friend with him with a baseball bat, and he pulls his hat out, and he lets the guy hit him three times with his baseball bat, and he didn't flinch. I said, I'd like to have one of those. So he made a prototype out of a Navy SEAL life vest with these thin air pockets around it with this Kevlar patch over the, uh, over the jacket. And I wore that toward the, end of the last couple of games of the year and, and all through the playoffs. And it enabled me to play and, and played very well with it. So it was uh, it was a comforting feeling. However, they did shoot me up with a little Novocaine and Marcane before the game at halftime every game. So that was kind of a kind of a tough thing to go through. But you know, you do what you have to do to to play. Well, we talk about the changing times. You, you mentioned in the book about you know you, you dated Playboy models and Las Vegas showgirls and. Farrah Fawcett, how would you have dealt with all that or could you have dealt with all that with today's social media and Twitter and, and that sort of thing? Well, you know, some people heard about it anyway, so we didn't have the social media, but it, it somehow made the papers. But, um, you know, that's just that's just life. It was the 70s. It was kind of wide open. We all had a lot of fun, but, you know, we all played hard, but we all worked hard, too. So I never shortchanged anybody in the football field, that's for sure. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us, Dan. It was really a pleasure. Thanks, Robert. I appreciate you having me. Joining me on Houston Sports Talk is Oilers legend Robert Brazil, seven-time pro bowler. We're standing uh, over in the bubble by the stadium, and the Astrodome is right next door. Do you remember 40 years ago coming to Houston and seeing the Astrodome for the very first time? Well, I had the pleasure of coming out to Houston prior to seeing the Astrodome. We played, I played at Jackson State. We came out to play Texas Southern. We didn't play in the the uh, dome, but I had a chance to see it. But to be able to get drafted by the Oilers and to be able to make that place, changing the name from the Astrodome to Dunes Dome. I had a lot to do with that. <laughs> what do you remember about coming to Houston right after you got drafted and just being in this city and, and the atmosphere? Much smaller town at the time. Wasn't quite the metropolis that it is now. What do you remember about that? Although metropolis for you, coming from Mobile and Jackson State, I'm sure. Well, it was. It was a great con- congestion for me. First of all, when I got here, I saw that the city was divided. We had half the city pulling for the Cowboys, and I was drafted by the Oilers, and that was a no-no for me. I had to come in and establish myself as an Oiler and make my team like the Houston Oiler team, not the Houston Dallas Cowboy fan team. What's your favorite memory from, from the Astrodome? Was it that pep rally in, in, in 1978, the, the two pep rallies in 78 79, but the first one specifically in 1978, was that was that your best memory or was it a game? No, I think the best memory was the last time I played in the Astrodome. 
I had not known I was going to retire that year, but it's something came about me in the feeling that this was my last game. We, I saw something on the wall that no one else seen. I saw the writing. We had traded bomb away over New Orleans. Some of my teammates was over New Orleans, and I felt like wow, this is my last season. I'm going into my 11th season next year. Let's make this a great game. I had a great game, but something about that game stuck with me, and it wasn't nothing that I did. I don't know if it was a sack or how many tackles I got. It was just the feeling that I got of the people that was in that Astrodome. I was at the memorial service a couple of years for Baum, and what do you remember about meeting Bum? Uh, just that first time you you talked to him and met him, and when he was named the, the Oilers coach. Well, the first time I met him, was we had flew in over to to negotiate my contract. My parents, my coach, and my agent, uh, Bud Holmes, and my mom and dad. And Bum walked up to me, and uh, he didn't have too much to say. It's just that I felt like again, here's my new dad. Uh, the, the way he approached things, the way he handled things, laid back, it wasn't like he put the nothing on me at that time. He just said, I'm glad that you are all. I want you to become my all, and I got some great plans for you. What are your plans? I said, I want to make your starting team. He said, well, you get first shot in August. <laughs> Earl Campbell, you played with him, but you also played against him in practice. Were, were you allowed to hit him, or maybe more importantly, was, was he allowed to hit you? <laughs> No, we had some drills that we did third up a little bit. We had a saying, and I think that saying saved a lot of Houston Oilers. The Houston Oilers was not on our schedule. We played Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Cincinnati, and those guys on Sunday. Baum had a no physical type of practice for us. We never had a full share square scrimmage. We would come up and bump each other. If that got two out raised, he would blow the whistle and say, that's enough. But the Houston Oilers is not on our schedule. When uh, Oral was drafted, did you think that things are going to change here? This could be somebody that could really raise the level of the game in, in Houston? I think that was the missing key. Um, when you have a defense like we had, we had two. We had a great defense. It was We had built a great defense from, from Teddy Washington, Steve Conner, Greg Bingham, Rob Brazil, Evan Bethay, Curly Cup, and Andy Doris. Hey, man, you're talking about two. Hall of Famers, a set of linebackers was taking no for an answer, and a secondary that we were saying, boom, all we was missing, we had a long threat with Kenny, a short th threat with Billy Washington Johnson. We didn't have the type of running back we needed. We needed an Earl. When we got Earl, that's what we were, we, we, we was ready to go. What was it like to play with a, a Hall of Famer like Elvin Bethay? What was it like to line up next to him every game? Well, being the oldest in my family, I never had a big brother, but when I came to Houston, I had all big brothers because I was the youngest cat on the group, and all league cats had five or six years in the league, and it was like, this is what you got to do if you want to stay here. And to have those guys as a leader and as a brother, I, was, I felt in the right place. You were one of the key guys as far as initiating the 3-4 defensive system. You were one of the first ones to be that rushing outside linebacker in a 3-4 what did you think when you first got into that system, and how much have you seen it change over the years when you when you watch NFL today? Well, I think what you, what I did and what they're doing now. Back then, I had to be a versatile linebacker. 
I had to rush, but I also had to go man-for-man coverage on some of the best running backs in the league at that time. I had to drop back in the zone or in the nickel coverage. We had, they didn't bring nickel backs in. They put me and Bingham in the middle. We had to cover running backs coming out the backfield and wide receivers. I remember covering Nate. Oh, uh, the guy from Miami. <laughs> I can't think of his name. Matt Moore? Was it Matt Moore. Matt Moore coming out the backfield. And so nowadays they don't do that. You got designated pass rush. You got designated covering guy, which I think is great. But it's a big change in the 3-4. You had a lot of characters on those teams. Uh, who, who is the guy that stuck out? Is Who is the craziest or most interesting guy to, to, to talk to every day? Was it Dan or was it Carl Mock? Or who, is there a guy that really was like, this guy, I can't wait to go, go see what he's up to today? I think it was the season. I mean, or the, or the, who had the best night that night? If, uh, you want to hear what Dan did? Uh, maybe you want to catch him on the Friday or uh, Saturday practice. Uh, during the week, Carl Mark kept us all up with the rah, rah, rah. And... Well, I mean, Stimmick. You got, you got Greg Stimmick. You got, we were a host of characters on that team. But we were all like brothers. So we all, we, we, we got off on each other, shall I say. If you were to talk to Bill O'Brien, what would you tell him maybe that the Texans could do to bring a little bit more of that sort of chemistry that the, the team had with the town and maybe that the players had with each other with Bum Phillips? What could you tell him maybe something that you guys did to, to make it, to, I guess, start that camaraderie and build that chemistry up, not only between each other, but also between the fans. Well, I think he knew need to do it. I mean, it's chemistry everywhere. Baum had a had his own style. Bill got his own style. Bill just got to win. I don't know how he's going to do it. But when you go to winning, some kind of way, your wagon going to get full of the fans and more fans that want to be a part of your winning program. I think he got everything he need. I mean, I'm a true believer in J.J., and he got help. He got some new linebackers in. Hey, man, that just oh, – he can always draft Robert for a day. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever seen anybody like J.J. Watt before and you're 40 40- – Five years, I guess, of b- being around football? I always wanted, you know, if I got a kid somewhere. I think he got some of my DNA in him. But no, no, all jokes aside, the guy is phenomenal. He's a great ball player on and off the field. I respect him and hope that one day he'll be in the Hall of Fame. Finally, I, what are you up to today? What's Robert Brazil doing? What's the latest with you? Well, uh, as of last year, I retired from the Mobile Public School System. I've been working with kids ever since I left Houston. You work uh, with special needs kids, right? Special needs kids. I mean, this was something I felt was needed. I had been an all-pro on the field, off the field, but I hadn't been an all-pro daddy. I had a son, Trey, lost his mom out here. And I said, when I, get, when I retire, I'm going to go home and try to be the best father to him and to other kids, and that's what I've been doing. Since I've been retired, I've been doing a lot of fishing and staying on the road. You lost your wife, you talk about it, in, in 1984 when you re- decided to retire from the Oilers. What would you tell somebody that kind of goes through that? You've had to live through that, that kind of war and, and deal with all that. I, th- what- I think what you got to do, and this is my decision, I had two parents, and to lose a parent, I bet being back then, it would have hurt me real bad. So if you got to go through something, you got to man up. If either you're the mom or you're the dad or you got to be both of them. So all you got to do is man up and deal with your daily problems on a daily basis. Just one more thing, because I was just thinking about it. You, you're a guy that people talk about should be in the Hall of Fame. 
have you thought about if, if, say, one day you got into the Hall of Fame, who you would want to introduce you and maybe what you would want to speak about? Do you, do you think about that? And do you have an idea of, like, this is what I would want to talk about if I got up there? This is the message that I would want to give everybody about my life. Yes, I have thought about it. I have spoke. I even went to the shower and made my speech two or three times. Different speeches. The person that I want to introduce to me should be in the Hall of Fame himself, which was Bob Phillips. And there's other guys that's out there that I think deserve it. I have another idea of things that I want to do. I have some Spanish-speaking grandkids that lived in Chile. So I would like for one of them to speak it in Spanish while the other translated it in English, and I would talk about my life history. Well, I just want to thank you for taking the time with me, and thank you for what you, you guys did for Houston back in the late 70s. It was such a special time. I don't think anybody that wasn't there can understand how unbelievable it was. I get emotional every time I see the old the old stuff, and it, it's really a pleasure I, to get a chance to talk to you. I know, Zach. Right now I'm standing here with chills because Houston made Robert Brazil the man he is today. The fans here, the people here, the ownership, Mr. Adams, the people that I had around me was a, a, a group of guys that I would never and ever forget. These guys are like brothers. I know it's sad to say this, but when all of us leave, there would never be another Houston Oiler. And we, we're getting the limit down every day. Well, I tell you what, you, you're not a Hall of Famer by the NFL, but you're a Hall of Famer for the people here that saw you and, and lived that. And, and thank you so much and really appreciate the time. Thank you. Again, thank y'all, man. It's, y'all made me for who I am today. Joining me now is Houston Oilers Hall of Famer Alvin Bethay. And we're out at Matt Musil's charity golf tournament. And one of the things that the golf tournament benefits is uh, Bum Phillips Charities. What, what's it mean to be out here to uh, benefit uh, one of the charities Bum, Bum loves so much. Oh, one of my my greatest coaches that I had to play play with uh, uh, during those years. And uh, as I was telling Debbie this morning uh, that that I when they said Bum Phillips and, and uh, Matt Mills was all in the same vo- voice, uh, I said, hey, I have to be there. But Bum Phillips tournament, uh, he, he meant a lot to me. He meant a lot to all the guys that um, you know turned out to be well from Hall of Famer to just a regular guy. He, he was more of a father figure to everyone, and also he w- was a real coach, uh, well, player's coach, let's put it like that, where he, he understood a lot of, uh, of how we were, and everybody played for him uh, because they, they loved the way he uh, you know, handled the players. The older guys, he took care of us, and just to make sure, just get in shape, you know what you're doing. That was the fun of playing, playing for, for a bum, and um, you know, they, they were, everybody was going to miss him, but you know, that's part of life. What do you remember about first meeting him and the, the first couple of uh, training camps with the, the Oilers and him and, and, and the atmosphere that was out there? <laughs> I'm glad you asked that question. Guy, when he first came in with his boots on and the, cow, and the cowboy boots, see, Bum was my uh, line coach with Sid, Sid Gilman. And I had I'd already gone through how many, four coaches, I think, and Bum and Sid came together and... Here he is with his cowboy boots on, and I'm wondering, what the hell have we gotten in there? We already had bad teams that at that time, but I say, who is this guy, a cowboy with a with his dipping snuff and all this? I said, we're in for a rude awakening. <laughs> but everything worked out, and you know, when he became the head coach in '70, I think it was '75. I mean, he, he took care of he took care of us, the older guys, the curly, myself. 
and uh, it was fun. It was, it was great because you didn't, you didn't know what it was going to come up with. It was going to be something corny, but it, it all worked. You mentioned Curly. Uh, Curly just got into the Hall of Fame. What did it mean to see him get in there? I was, I was very happy, very happy, and I was still waiting for one more piece to this puzzle, which is Robert Brazil. And Robert, he and I played side by side, and I always thought that he he was the Lawrence Taylor before Lawrence Taylor. Even Lawrence Taylor admitted that to someone that uh, Robert Brazil was he, he was a stud. He was a stud. But this year, where we've been talking. Uh, among ourselves is we have to get Robert in. He's the last key to that puzzle with the Oilers. And since we're everybody, there's no Oilers, but there's well, the Texans and Titans, and I don't really follow. But Brazil, I- I'm hoping this is the year. Hoping this. So I'm getting with John McClain, and we have our yearly discussion, just like we did with Curly. And uh, I told him, I said, Curly should be in there, and about two years later, he's there. So I'm hoping Brazil gets in this this within the next two years. I was lucky enough to talk to Robert just a, a few weeks ago, and we talked about the uh, the parade, uh, not the parade, but the, the pep rally at the dome and everything. Yeah. And I, I love asking all of you guys about that because that's it's coming up on uh, we're we're at 35 years uh, since uh, sort of the end of that era. What do you remember about the drive to the dome and the pep rally? Hey, that was one. Outstanding, unbelievable. I mean, there's no words yet that could express that, that feeling that we had coming back after losing to Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh, coming back not knowing that we were, we were they told us to leave our cars at the airport, they were going to take us on bus. We had no idea. And when we came into the dome, uh, well, even before we got to the dome, people that were at the airport, the, the, the lines were long, horns were blowing, lights were flashing. And when we got to the dome, uh, they took us to the dome, and I could not believe when they opened it and let us out. And here's, what, 60,000 people standing up at the rafters, and many people said, what's the greatest time you ever had, or greatest thrill? I said, the 1978 uh, and 79 years we came. Best best year I ever had, and I still remember that. That's the best thing that ever happened to me. I had the Hall of Fame and all that, but just to seeing the people there, you're talking about 60,000-plus people, and you're you're a losing team. You lost lost the game. Just think, what would have what would have happened if we'd won the game? And, uh, as the world of the pilot said, we wouldn't have been able to land land the plane in Houston. It, it, it was the greatest thrill of my life, uh, best ever. And uh, I don't think we'll ever see that again, though. I don't think so. And that, that depends on what this new team does, Texans. But uh, those were years that are cher- cherished that you'll never forget. Never you can't can't erase them. And even today, I see people that were there and mother, grandmothers, and of young guys, the people that I meet, and they said they want to know about the old Oilers, and said he had to been there. <laughs> yeah, I think it was Steve Sable. He said it was like uh, most great events; those who were there will never forget, and uh, those who weren't will never quite understand. And I, I also want to ask you about a guy that I think uh, you might be a little bit familiar with, defensive ends in the NFL, and, and the Texans have a guy named J.J. Watt. What do you think when you watch this guy play? Oh, he's, he, he's uh, doing what I used to do, and uh, and he does it well. And uh, they, there's some things that uh, I always I said to him, if I were just his size, about 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, just think what I could be. Instead of the Hall of Fame, I had had it on my back twice. Hall of Fame, but looking at J.J., 
he, he's got everything going for me. Just as long as he doesn't get hurt, which in this in this game, you're, you're, it'll happen. But uh, the way he's playing, that's the only way you play it, wide open. That's the only way you enjoy the game, go out there and show what your skills are and how, how good you are in, in challenge. I mean, he doesn't, his motor doesn't cut off. And that's the way I used to play. I just, even in practice, they say, slow down. No, we can't slow down. But my, my accelerator's broke. <laughs> but that's the way he's playing. And that's the, way, the only way you play the game. And, uh, you know, the, he uh, does things that many people, you know, what he, he plays both sides that I didn't. That depends on the, you know, his defensive scheme. But he's, uh, he's exciting to see. Where does he rank among the guys that you've that you've seen over the years? I mean, you've seen Reggie White and Deacon Jones and all these guys. Well, he's got a way to go when he gets away. Reggie White and Deacon Jones. Yeah. I, I, I'm be honestly, I, I've seen Deacon and God where we used to have the old head slap and all the other things that we could use back then. But uh, he, he's up there. But uh, the Deacon and, and Reggie, uh, you couldn't get any better than that. And I, I try to. Um, idolized all, all the things that he did and I wanted to make them to what I the way I played and I said Deacon Jones that's it and I, I mean, I mean you, you'd have to meet him you'd have to meet him he, he was with the greatest I uh, didn't have chance, the chance or time ever to meet a, a White but but the Deacon was a, he was a different person he was a different person you would have enjoyed him but he, on the field and off the field I know we're out on the golf course, and I, I want to let you get back to the golf course, but just want to say for, for all the guys that uh, remember the time and remember the Love You Blue, thank you so much for the memories that you guys brought, and, and it was such a pleasure to, to watch you guys. And, and, and as a kid, I think it, it, it made me love sports a lot more, and so I, th- I, think, I thank you for that. Thanks a bunch, and uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, I thank you. I always tell people, I said, without the fans behind us, we were just out there, but I always have to always have to thank the fans and the people that followed us and believed in us and and uh, got excited about all of, all that we did. But it was the fans that, that kept us kept us going, kept us motivated each game. I got to say that Oilers Hall of Famer Elvin Bethay, thanks so much. Now let's hear from longtime Chronicle reporter Dale Robertson, who talks about training camp in the Lovey Blue days. The uh, Bum Phillips training camps in San Angelo were about as loose and casual as could be. Uh, you needed to talk to a player. You just hung out in the dormitory. We actually slept in the same building as they did. You needed a guy. You waited, waited after lunch, after dinner. You'd lounge on a couch, have a conversation. If I needed to talk to Bum, I just went over and banged on his door, and he'd open it and let me in. We'd sit there and sit there and watch film and uh, film together and chit-chat. Uh, uh, let's just say it's a little more restrictive these days. Well, one of the things you were, you were telling me uh, a few days ago was that Bum started camp in late june and, and tell me a little bit about why he did that well bum had a bum bum was uh, loved horses you know and of course spent the la- last part of his life as a horseman as a real cowboy he, he showed horses and he rode horses trained horses but he had a lot of horses back in the 70s and san angelo is a pretty good horse country so he would just load up load up the animals and get out there you know in his trailer and he'd try to get out there in mid-june set up camp and uh, there were no restrictions under the collective bargaining agreement in those days in fact i'm not sure there was a collective bargaining agreement in 1978 when they went to san angelo and uh, that, that in his downtime he went out and played with his horses so yeah so camp one year was uh, was nine as i recall nine weeks long and i actually had to leave camp to go meet my wife for uh, fourth of july <laughs> now we started on july 26 this year 
What's one, what's one of the crazier stories over the years that you can remember? Because there was always craziness going on with Glanville, and, and of course, bum, it was less crazy but more fun, I guess. Well, my two favorites, of course, unfortunately, in, uh, involve uh, firearms. <laughs> uh, the orders, uh, I'm going to say in maybe 79 or 80, had a camp picnic, and they had a big nose tackle by the name of Mike Stensrud, who went by the name of Mongo, which, of course, came, <laughs> came from Blazing Saddles. And he had a bit of Mongo in him, and uh, one night he did the, maybe perhaps had that one too many Lone Stars, and all of a sudden... Mongo is firing wildly in all, wildly in all directions. <laughs> Players ducking undercover, and actually, I won't mention the names in this other incident. But in a Huntsville training camp, uh, uh, one teammate actually pulled a gun on another. I'm going to leave the names out of that, but uh, you, you don't see that stuff anymore, uh, which I think is good, actually. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, well. Here's here, here's a great story. The night before the last day of training camp in 1980. The orders had traded Kenny Stabler, uh, traded for Kenny Stabler uh, with the Raiders and sent Dan Pastrini to the Raiders, right? Bum was thinking, uh, you know, you can't beat him, join him. The Raiders were the one team that seemed capable of beating the Steelers back in the day, so he acquired, and it would subsequently require uh, Dave Casper as well, you know, uh, Hall, of, Hall of Fame tight end. But anyway, so uh, as I think everybody may remember uh, Snake Stabler, but he was he was a bit of a bit of a wild child, uh, as was Pastorini, but kind of in a different way. In fact, my favorite all-time uh, Kenny Stabler's uh, quote was about the only thing I really like to do is play football and drive around in my pickup truck sipping whiskey out of a paper cup. Okay, and he said, and I, I got several ex-wives that never never figured that out. <laughs> so that's Kenny Stabler. Anyway, so there was a, there was a nightclub there called Friends. And well, Snake made a lot of friends at Friends, and I recall seeing him face down in the parking lot at about 2 in the morning. So I go out to practice the next morning, and I might say at the time, this is probably interesting, that my, my, my bitter, bitter, bitter rival of covering the Oilers was my dear, dear friend and colleague today, John McLean. Well, John was, pa- John was packing up to go home and decided to skip the morning practice. Went out to practice and noticed that there was no snake stabler on the field anywhere. So afterwards, I sidled up to Bum. I was the only reporter. Now, think about this. I was the only reporter at that practice. There was no electronic media. John was back in his room. It was just me. And I said, Bum, what's up with Snake? Uh, he's sick. He's a little under the weather. I said, uh, is this the kind of sick that's probably going to cost him a fine? Bum said, Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's changed. It's a, it's a different world. Can you imagine Facebook or Twitter <laughs> during that time? It's not even it's oh, not we, even possible. We talk about that all the time. Yeah, no, I mean it'd be it's, it's a whole different world. And I have to tell you though, Snake Stabler, he he couldn't have cared less though. You did made no difference. <laughs> made no difference to him. You could he, he could have been tweeted and Facebook till the cows came home, and he'd still do what he did. Great stories from Dale. Now let's hear from Jerry Trupiano. For those who don't remember. Or weren't around, Jerry hosted the original sports talk radio show in Houston back in the 70s and 80s on KTRH. He grew up in St. Louis covering the Cardinals for KMOX and spent many years as the radio voice of the Red Sox after leaving Houston. A little bit about the fan bases. You you were around the Cardinals and what a great uh, fan base they are and the Red Sox, of course, and then the World Series time there in 2004. How does the Love You Blue fan base compare to those two? Oh, the, 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 those fans were so passionate uh, about the Oilers. They were they were so anxious for that team after uh, quite a few years of, of not being very good. 
they were so anxious for the team, as Bum Phillips would say, uh, to kick in the door. They never got it quite kicked in. But there there was a love affair between the city and that team. And you talk about a team with characters. I still hear from Dan Pastorini from time to time, but Carl Bach, Elvin Bethay, a, a good friend, uh, the great Earl Campbell. There was there was just so many characters on that on that team. And who would have thought that uh, Ted Thompson, who I tried to get on as a as a broadcast partner when we had an opening on on the Oilers broadcast, I, I could have screwed up the Green Bay Packers for years if I would have gotten him on the air. He wouldn't have become the GM as as they went on to to win a Super Bowl. You started as the voice in 1980, right? So that would have been right uh, right after the the bum firing. Is yeah, we had the Ed Biles years where things didn't go too well, and uh, then uh, who came in next? Was it well? Chuck Studley then took over as the interim coach, and then they went to uh, Hugh Campbell, and that didn't quite work out because they they thought by bringing Hugh Campbell in they'd they'd be able to get Warren Moon, and that did turn out to be a fact. And then it was. Jerry Glanville. <laughs> what was Jerry like? That that had to be uh, quite interesting. <laughs> How much time do you have? There was one night he, he was very superstitious. You got time for a couple stories? Sure, go ahead. All right. Very superstitious. Even in the preseason, if, if the ball club had won the previous game, we would do the pregame interview. If it'd be on the field and they won, we do it on the field the next week. If it was in the dressing room and they won, it, it would be it would be in the dressing room. So we're playing the Dallas Cowboys in that annual preseason game, right? So I'm looking for Glanville to uh, uh, to do the the pregame interview before I go up to the booth to, to, to call the game, and I'm looking all over for him. And uh, they they say, well, Jerry's sick. He wants you to, to come into the coach's dressing room. So I go into the coach's dressing room, and all the lights are off. He is laying on the floor under about three blankets, and he wants me to kneel down as as we do this interview because he's so sick. So we do the interview, and then like James Brown in the old uh, routine where he'd, he'd throw off uh, the, the, the uh, cloak he was wearing and then come back to the stage and, and, and continue the song, Glanville throws off the three blankets and then goes out to coach, you know, it was, to me, a little bit of drama. Then, then, in the regular season, playing the Cleveland Browns at Old Municipal Stadium. Now, I'm not the brightest bulb on the tree, okay? We're, we're coming out of, out of the dressing room, and we're going to do the interview on the field in the end zone because they had won the previous week, and, and we did the interview on the field in the end zone. So, so now we're walking out down steps and back up the dugout steps to go out on the field, it finally comes to my attention that there's a dozen police officers following us. And now we're in the end zone in the middle of a circle of 12 policemen. And I said, Jerry, what's going on here? He says, well, there's a death threat against me. He shows me a bulletproof vest he's wearing. And I'm supposed to do this pregame interview with his Yahoo as as we're surrounded by a, by a dozen police officers. He, you know, he would go around and leave tickets in New York for the Phantom of the Opera or tickets for Elvis when we played a preseason game in Memphis. He was a piece of work. That was Jerry Truppiano. How about a little more on Coach Glanville from one of his players? Here's a bit from my interview with Spencer Tillman. You played for the Oilers in uh, 87 and 88. Jerry Glanville was your coach. 
Give me your best Glanville story. I, I want to hear some <laughs> stuff from the man in black. <laughs> oh, man, it's just crazy. I, I remember one time, you know, we had so many different receivers, uh, smaller guys. And one in particular was a, a highlight reel, Ernest Givens. And Ernest um, got hurt in practice. And, and, and Ernest had an affinity for the dramatic, right? And he's going out for a pass, and he would contort his body in all these crazy ways. And you were like, man, that's an ACL, or that's, a, that's an MCL. That's major. That's big time. And he'd bounce right up like nothing happened. So we got in, in, into a habit of just dismissing some of the, the antics. And one particular occasion, right before a big game, Ernest went up over the middle for an unbelievable catch. And I can't remember if it was Patrick Allen or someone of that ilk um, that, that hit him. And we said, that's, that's it, man. It's over with. So it got quiet. Jerry Glanville saunters from the sideline to come and see exactly what the problem. Brad Brown, who was our trainer, had already made it there and kneeled down beside him. It looked like a very dire situation. And it was so quiet that we could actually hear what Coach was saying. And when Jerry came over, his whistle dangling from his neck, his hands both on knees, bent over and just said, is she wounded? Or is she emotionally scarred? <laughs> you know, it is one of those deals where it was a classic moment that lightened everybody up, and we saw Ernest begin to chuckle and laugh, you know. And that was kind of an inside joke, but it was one of those things that Jerry had an affinity for being able to take a moment, lighten it up if he needed to, or do the opposite, cause a fight if he needed to. You had, he had henchmen on the team that would do that, and I was unfortunately one of them, and uh, Eugene Seals and other guys that would step up and start mayhem when we needed a burst. So... Uh, it was fun times. Uh, there was post love you blue, but we had our own culture. We had so many talented players. Mike Rozier, um, if you go back and Ray Childress, uh, uh, Jones. We had, um, uh, I mean, just just go down the litany of all the players that we had. Uh, Lorenzo White, uh, Lonzo Highsmith, Haywood Jeffries. It, it just goes on and on. And there was no shortage of uh, unbelievably skilled and talented players on that team. Should have achieved more. We go from Spencer Tillman to Kenny Hand, who covered it all in Houston in his days reporting at the Houston Post at 610 and 790 AM and on Channel 13's Extra Points. Here's a bit from my interview with Kenny Hand. For those who weren't here for that, ex- explain what it was like to be living in Houston because you were that's exactly about the time you got here when the Levy Blue era started. Yeah, I got here in 77 and uh, Bum was the coach and it was just a, a magical mystical trip it was just so much fun bum had a way about him uh of just uh cutting to the chase he had a lot of guys that loved playing for him and and they were characters Carl mox comment with gifford nielsen his first day coming to the oilers from brigham young gifford gets in the huddle and practice and mox is Gifford, is that chocolate milk that I smell on your breath? And Gifford said, why, yes. Yes, it is chocolate milk. And you talk about opposites attracting. I mean, they were just a great big mix of different personalities and different people. And Bum made it all work. They loved playing for Bum. And he just made covering football fun here. Of course, when they get Earl Campbell, you know, make that work with Pastorini and Kenny Burrow. I think the Steelers were the only thing getting in the way of the Oilers winning the Super Bowl because I, I I think the Oilers were better than the Cowboys in those couple of years in 79 and 80 when, when the uh, Steelers won the AFC. And I think had the Oilers been able to – had they not had the Steelers as the big boulder, then the Oilers would have beaten the NFC team to win the Super Bowl. I truly believe that. Oh, yeah, I, I, I agree. They ran into one of the greats of all time, great teams. 
Well, speaking of the Oilers, Kenny, uh, you wrote a book about the 89 Oilers, the year of pain, and covered the team <laughs> in the Warren Moon era. Uh, yeah. What did you think of that? Did you by chance see that documentary on the NFL Network of the 93 Oilers? And how would you sum up the Moon era, the Warren Moon era, under both Jerry Glanville and Jack Pardee? Yeah, they were. I mean, obviously, uh, it was it, Jerry was. Uh, I don't know why I got along with him or he got along. I mean, I I just you know how personalities go, and uh, you can't explain it. And nobody seemed to like Glanville here. Jerry was like the World Wrestling Federation. He was like um, theatrics, and most of it just a just a you know he was he was trying to distract from. Um, all the stuff that might have been aimed at any criticism of his players, and it and it, and it didn't work. I mean, Jerry should have just Jerry. When he, if you just sat down and had a beer with Glanville, I mean, he was a he was a pretty calm guy and pretty and a really decent guy. But we just never get to see that side of him here. Most people because he was always leaving tickets for Elvis and doing you know crazy stuff. But he was a good coach, and he outcoached a lot of NFL coaches. Uh, when he was on the Oilers' sideline. But the problem with Warren Moon was that um, they they had a real good offense and they threw the ball around a lot. But as we know, uh, numbers don't mean everything. You don't win playoff games with garish offensive numbers. You, you still win playoff games the old-fashioned way with defense and running the ball and controlling the clock and, and completing key passes and crunch time stuff. And a lot of times Moon would just throw, you know, 42 for 56 for 420 yards and then just throw some horrible interception late. And Warren was a good quarterback, don't get me wrong, a really good quarterback. But they just never did have the – they were they were a little soft on offense. They had all these great wide receivers, and I mean I loved Haywood Jeffries and um, Curtis Duncan, and you know Lorenzo White was a good back, but they never had an Earl Campbell type back. They never had just a you know Rozier was a good back, but they never had a a guy that you know what I'm saying that you know never had an Eric Dickerson or somebody to just absolutely take over and pound it out of that. Uh, that kind of run-and-shoot offense. And then in 93, I mean, Jack Pardee comes in, great guy, just a wonderful guy, low-key. Uh, but here's a – but uh, they should have never, ever, ever lost that playoff game to Buffalo. I mean, they got a 35-3 to lead early third quarter after Bud McDowell. Bud McDowell returns that interception for a touchdown. and But Adams flew home. He, he, he thought the game was over, and he takes his private jet backs to Houston – and he lands, and and at the airport in here, I guess it was Hobby, where Bud lands, and he hits the ground, and somebody says, gosh, Mr. Adams, I sure am sorry about the way the game ended. And when Bud left, Buffalo was 35-3. to And Bud said, what do you mean? And they said, well, I mean, the Oilers losing. He goes, losing? I mean, Bud was in disbelief when he landed. I don't know why he left early. Why would, if you're the owner, why would you leave early in yeah, Buffalo? Especially knowing maybe the owner's history. Maybe at an early dinner at Tony's back here on, I don't know, for Carabas. I don't know, maybe they had reservations. Well, one thing you learn about being a Houston fan is you, you 
when when you got a huge lead, the only thing that can happen is bad. So you just kind of turn off the TV and hit, and I guess Bud just goes, well, I can just leave the entire city. <laughs> I, it just you know, the, if you go back and this is aired on ESPN, uh, many you know from start to finish, you have to catch it at the right time. They don't they don't uh, broadcast a lot of times when it's going to be on, but sometimes late at night, you know, you'll you'll be lucky enough you might catch the the uh, replay of that game and it. If you haven't ever seen it from start to finish and you're an Oilers fan or Houston fan, you should one time, then you probably don't want to see it again. But it's like, you know, after like the second touchdown pass from Frank Reich to Andre Reed, it's like, will you guys run the football? Will you hand off to Lorenzo White? (laughs) Will you eat some clock? All they kept doing is first down, throw it, interception. (laughs) It's like... This can't be. This cannot happen. And you guys have seen this before in sports. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's boxing or baseball, little league or major league, where all of a sudden the pitcher can't throw a strike, and then somebody else comes in and he can't throw a strike, and everybody walks in a run, and all of a sudden the boxer that's controlled the fight for six rounds just is getting. Oh, now he's just getting pummeled, and he can't figure out how to come back and. It was just one of those weird things. I've never seen anything like it where it just starts happening and there's nothing you can do to to turn it back around. Yeah, I think they could have just taken a knee every time and, and probably <laughs> ran out the whole clock. Exactly. exactly. Run the ball. Please. It's like I, I, was, I was saying, please, somebody hand the ball off. Just run the ball three <laughs> times and punt. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, don't remind us, Kenny. We remember it all too well. Kenny Hand, we'll go from him to Tom Franklin. Tom was the radio voice of the Oilers from 1990 to 1993. And, of course, he's been a fixture on Houston Radio for 40 years. My co-host, R.G. Seals, starts off by asking him about that time. Since you saw him up close, close and personal, why do you think those Oiler teams could never get over the hump? I think if, if I had to boil it down... Uh, I think it was the run and shoot that ultimately was their undoing. And it somewhat ties into the Buddy Ryan, Kelvin Gilbride fight on the sidelines uh, in the final game of the 1993 season is that I think that when the Oilers got a lead, their running game was not proficient enough to take time off the clock. When you just need to control the football you have enough points, you just need to make it impossible for the other team to come back against you. And despite the fact that you had good running backs, you had Mike Rozier at the start, you had Alan Pinkett, you had Lorenzo White, you had Gary Brown, guys who were talented enough because the game was so predicated on pass blocking, as good as those offensive linemen like Munchak and Matthews and Steinkuhler and all the rest were, they never got enough work to run block to when the chips were really down they could control the ball and take the air out of it so the other team couldn't score. And if I had a point of any one thing, that was it. And it showed up in the Buffalo game. Because even though they had the big league and Buffalo was coming back, the Oilers could not run the ball. They tried, but they couldn't run the ball successfully and sustain drives to keep the Bills on the sidelines. The defense kept going back out there and eventually gets worn down in the ball game. And if I were to say anything, that was the one flaw of the run and shoot is that it did not have a potent enough running attack and a respected enough running attack that would keep them on the field enough that would take ball games to the wire. And you often saw them come up short at the end. 
Well, a couple of weeks ago, the NFL Network's a Football Live series did that fantastic hour on the 93 Oilers. I don't think we would have believed it if we, had, we hadn't have seen it here in Houston. Tom, you were the voice of the Oilers that year. We heard your calls and your thoughts throughout the documentary. What did you think of the show? Uh, did they get most of it right? I think they got most of it right. I think they did a pretty good job. Um, you know, I, I think the, they did a couple of things that, 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 that bothered me a little bit. Is, is Jack Party was a lot stronger man and a lot stronger head coach than he was portrayed. And Mike Holovac was a much, much stronger general manager and knew more about football than almost anybody else I knew besides Joel Bushbaum. And the one little clip that they, they showed of Mike certainly did not paint him in a very good life. Those were two outstanding men, two great football minds, and, and I think they got portrayed as chumps, and I think that was wrong. But I think the rest of it was very, very well done. Did they miss anything important in it? Did, is there anything that you thought, oh, they didn't talk about this or that, and that was a pretty crazy part of the equation too? I'm sure they probably left something out, <laughs> but there was so much in there. I don't know that they had enough time to squeeze it all into an hour. I mean, how can you start from blowing a 32-point lead against Buffalo on January the 3rd and get all the way to January the, the 16th of the, of the following year, just over 370 days, with so many different things happening, you know, you bring you, you fire your defensive coaching staff, bring in a guy like Buddy Ryan who upsets the apple cart and goes against everything else that has been created there to try and bring in this attacking style defense. You get off to the crummy start at one and five. You bench Warren or one and four rather. You bench Warren Moon. You have Babygate come up, which I think turns out to be a rallying point for the team, because I think they just got fed up with everything that happened to be the game to where everything turned from that particular point in time. Moon was benched. Cody Carlson starts. He gets the injury. Moon comes back on, becomes the hero with the win over the Patriots. And, you know, the one thing I think they forgot about and, and maybe didn't portray well enough about Babygate was is that that game, we're flying the, the charter to New England for the ball game. And they have to put us down in Philadelphia for two hours on the tarmac because of the fog that's in the New England area. And, you know, you saw the thing, well, David should be here, David should be here. Well, guess what? Even if David tried, and I think he really did try to get there after the baby was born, to get up there on Sunday, he couldn't get there because when we got to the stadium in Foxborough that, time, that, that year, we got there about 10.30 for the kickoff, which was 1 o'clock Eastern time. And we could not see the field because the fog was still there. And the fog did not lift until about 20 minutes before kickoff because I was really wondering, I'm hoping they got a, t a television monitor here in this booth because that may be the only way I can see the field and tell people via radio what's going on in this ballgame because I've got no clue where the field is up in the press box. So even if David, you know, guys gave David a bad rap on that, but I think he really made every effort to get there Weather just prevented him from getting there. There was no way he was going to get there. Hey, Tom, how palpable was that tension between uh, Buddy Ryan and Kevin Gilbride? Because that's what a big focus of the documentary was about, about the offense and defense really hating one another on field. The camaraderie was in the locker room, Warren Moon explained afterwards, and Sean Jones on that, that post-special. But just to you, I mean, how, how much of that uh, was, was authentic in the documentary? It was very authentic. The practice sessions were, were very, very heated. The guys, when they got away from the coaches to themselves, were a lot better and a lot closer and a lot tighter. And as I started to mention, I think Babygate really became a rallying point because 
even though David was like the first or one of the first prime athletes to miss a game, if you will, for the birth of a child, because as you kept seeing from, you know, people like offensive line coach Bob Young, this is war. You don't miss, you know, you don't leave in the middle of war for the birth of a child. You, you, you stay in the war and all that sort of stuff because David was the first to kind of set the trend that we now see as commonplace today. Uh, I think that so much had gone on, and I really think that, you know, when it was announced before the game that, that David was going to be uh, fined by Bud Adams for, for missing the ball game and having a paycheck taken away, I think the guy said, oh, the heck with all this sort of stuff. Let's just go out there and play football. And I think that really led to the 11-game winning streak that, that propelled them to the 12-4 and record and got them to a first-round bye in the playoffs. I, I think Babygate was a turning point and was a rallying cry within the locker room. Granted, when the two coaches got after each other and, you know, the, the meeting rooms are closed and you can hear each other talk back and forth, that was it. But when the guys were alone, I think the guys were a whole lot tighter than it was, may have been portrayed in that particular, uh, you know, episode by NFL Films. Well, the guy that you were calling the Oilers game with at that time was Bum Phillips. That was your partner in the booth. And just what was it like to not only work with Bum, but just be around him on a regular basis? It was the Pied Piper. I mean, every city we went to, even though we were the visiting team, everybody was waiting at the hotel, waiting to see Bum get off the bus after we you know, left the airport and got to the hotel. Bum was the crowd favorite everywhere we went. And people were standing in line to shake his hand, to say hello, to have him sign something. And he, he, was, he was absolutely the Pied Piper. There, there's no better way for me to describe it. And uh, our biggest chore back in those days was first to get bummed to say a lot of the things that he would say in commercial breaks on the air. He would say, he would tell you would dissect things during the commercial breaks. This is going to, and we'd look at him bum. You need to say this when we're on the air with the people, just don't tell us here in the booth, tell everybody what you're seeing out here. That's why we've got you here. We finally converted that. And then we, it was my goal. There was a three, we had a three man crew at that time. Uh, the first two years, John O'Reilly was the third man, and the second two years, Russ Small was the third man in the booth. But uh, John and I, when we first started that, it's an Oilers broadcast. They're coming back to KTRH after a five-year stint on on, uh, on a different radio station. And with Bum being the attraction, we looked at each other, and there's you know there's no social media like there is today. And our goal was to have one or two what we called Bumisms per ball game. So when people went to work on Monday and got together to talk about the ball game, people would say, did you hear what Bum said about? That was my whole goal for every broadcast. I knew they weren't listening for me. They're listening for Bum, and I wanted to make sure that there was one or two memorable moments in a broadcast where Bum would say something that would have people talking the very next day. And, uh, but to learn so much football from him, sitting next to him, Sitting with him on the planes and discussing things, it was uh, you know like being next to an encyclopedia, because the man was a football genius not only from an X's and O standpoint, but how to handle people and how to handle his players. And there's no doubt as to why those Love Your Blue teams back in the late '70s were as successful as they were. It was because of that man walking the sideline and being the leader. Tom Franklin on Bum Phillips, and I can never hear enough about Bum. Let's go back to the early 90s Oilers, and we caught up with a four-time Pro Bowler, one of the great defensive ends in NFL history, William Fuller. Me and former co-host Anthony Giegel had a chance to talk about his time in Houston with the Oilers. 
few months ago, the NFL Network showed that fantastic documentary on the 93 team, perhaps the most fascinating season in NFL history. What were your thoughts as you kind of lived through that season and retelling that story? And how ta- <laughs> yeah, and how talented do you think that team was? Wow. Well, uh, my thoughts are, I mean, we were extremely talented. I mean, it was some incredible talent. It, it was fun to do that. The NFL Network flew me out to uh, their headquarters in New Jersey and was able to spend time with them. And I'm actually the guy who got on the phone and uh, encouraged Sean Jones and uh, uh, Ray Childress and, and those guys to participate as well. And, and Sean made contact with Haywood Jeffries. And uh, I thought they did a good job. Uh, as far as my reaction, I knew that it was dysfunction. I lived it. Uh, but, you know, in looking at that, uh, you know, I, I, I couldn't remember that we had that much dysfunction and so much going on in those and in that 93 season and the season before, obviously with the, with the Buddy Ryan and Gilbert situation and with Baby Gate and, and it was just on and on and on. So, and, and the fact that we were able to accomplish what we accomplished in spite of, you know, getting in our own way, tripping over our own feet, I mean, is incredible. And you talk to a lot of good football people, uh, they'll tell you that that was probably one of the most talented, uh, uh, teams that they had ever seen. I mean, at just about every position and, you know, the real shame is that we weren't able to bring the championship to Houston. And, uh, you know, I'm not sitting here wearing a Super Bowl ring uh, today. You know, William, some folks, uh, Oiler fans, would say the 93 team, the, the team that went 111 straight, went 12-4 and four and played the Chiefs in the playoffs, also might have been one of the best ever. But I kind of go back to the 91 Oilers when you ended up playing uh, the Denver Broncos. I, I feel like that was one of Warren. <laughs> It was one of Warren Moon's best years, and hey, I think you had 15 sacks and went to the Pro Bowl. Yeah. So, so what do you think of that '91 yeah. team? Oh, I, mean, I thought the '91 team was great. Now, you know, all three years, you know, we went to went to playoffs. God, what was the I don't know, six, seven years straight. Um, it's really hard to say. We go up there, we face some some legends. You know, we go to Denver, and uh, we feel like we got a great chance there. And, of course, you know, Elway pulled the rabbit out of this hat with a big drive on us, and like he's done on so many teams. And then we uh, we have the Buffalo thing, and then, then Kansas City. And just when you think, you know, Montana, you know, doesn't have anything left in the tank, you know, he, uh, you know, he puts on a good performance too. But it's hard for me to really say that, you know, one team was much better than the other. You know, a lot of the talent uh, was, uh, was uh, on all three of those teams, but. You know, again, it just gets back to the to the, the talent we had just through the years, just through the years. You could probably go a you know five six year stretch where we had some damn good talent in Houston. And you know, I I kind of recall not only in that Broncos playoff game, but of course the infamous Bills game. Defensive coordinator Jim Eddy got a lot of blame for that. But do you think that was a bit unfair? Because for me, I see similar reasons for both of those losses. I mean, not just maybe. Uh, not enough timely defense, but not enough ball possession by the offense and some untimely turnovers. Right. Well, I mean, you, you hate to point blames, and we're all in it together. Uh, you know, the fact that we were successful with Jim Eddy's defense through the year and, and had done well, I, I don't want to throw Jim Eddy under the bus. And there are a number of things that really contributed to it. Uh, you know, I love Kevin Gilbride. You know, I respect him. I think he's a fantastic coach. I thought Buddy Ryan was a great coach, too. Uh, obviously, you know, it's, it's tough to keep focused and to, and to be successful when you have all that issues that were going on amongst them. But even with that, even with that, as far as, as Buffalo is concerned, I think one of the biggest things, what a lot of folks don't look at, is the fact that, 
you know, when you have a high-powered offense, it's feast of famine. Uh, the run and shoot was great. We'll go against the number one defense. I remember we went up to Kansas City and Warren Moon threw for 500. We're all over. And then the next week, I can't remember who we played, and we can't score seven points. So, you know, when it's on fire, it was on fire. But at the same time, it's not the type of offense where you run out the clock and you're able to protect the big lead. You know, they throw the ball. So, uh, you know, once we had that big lead, you know, we didn't have the running game to really, you know, eat up the clock. And so uh, Buffalo was able to tee off and, uh, you know, get some big plays and get back into it. Uh, if you had a traditional defense, and again, I, I respect the run and shoot. I just think that we should have had a tight end somewhere on the roster, you know, whether we use, it, use them in a limited manner, a fullback on the roster, so that now you can offer that protection, you can offer those extra blockers when you want to, you know, uh, run your power game and run game. I mean, uh, I, that, that's just my take. A lot of the stuff you see with these wide open spread uh, offenses is really an offshoot of you know some of the things that Kevin did uh, with the run and shoot. But yet they do have those additional players so that you know when you face those times where it's implement weather or just for whatever reason things are not clicking, things are not clicking from an offensive standpoint. It's good to be able to have those uh, those guys on the roster to be able to now let's let's get back to you know dirty grunt football. And, you know, you, you know, through the years, we've had some, some great teams that can throw it up and down the field. But you look at it, it's usually the deep teams with the good defense and the teams that can run the football that actually bring home the trophy, you know, at the end of the year. Uh, it'd be interesting to see how, you know, how the Eagles do. Uh, I, I have a lot of respect for Jim Kelly. I'm going to get from, from uh, uh, Coach Kelly and what he's doing. Uh, they uh, did a fantastic job uh, last year as far as, uh, you know, winning a number of games and getting to the playoffs, but yet, you know, stuff they're totally in the playoffs. And I just think it's hard for, you know, since the greatest show on turf with the Rams, I just don't think you're going to see that year in and year out. I think it's the teams a la Seattle, you know, teams that have a good defense uh, and that can run the ball on you as well as throw the ball are the ones that are going to, you know, ultimately find goal at the end of the year or, you know, get that Super Bowl trophy. Well, speaking of those offenses and, and, and the ones that you guys had were so innovative under Jack Pardee, we, we lost Jack uh, last year. And in many ways, the offensive system he implemented with the Gamblers and then the Cougars and the Oilers changed football from the NFL all the way down to the high school level. I mean, you see that on a daily basis. What kind of coach was Jack and, and what did you learn from being around him? I like Jack. He was a great coach. First of all, he was a great human being, a great man. And I think everybody res- respected him. Uh, he was not the, t- you know, a fire and brimstone type of coach. And then I think in some instances, you know, the dynamics that were going on with Kevin and, uh, uh, and Buddy, you know, may not have happened under, you know, a, a more forceful coach who actually took control. But, you know, he was one that, you know, gives his, uh, his coordinators a lot of latitude and, uh, you know, kind of just sit back and, and you still have coaches today that operate that way. So I'm not saying that he was wrong in doing that. Uh, but he was he was an outstanding man. He was a good football player, and uh, certainly uh, you know sad to see here that you know he's no longer here. That was William Fuller talking about that infamous '93 season. Let's hear more from a guy who covered those teams and played a major role in that '93 documentary. Anybody who's followed the NFL in Houston knows who this next guest is. Four decades now, he's been covering the NFL for the Chronicle. I'm talking about the general. John McClain. In the last year, you've been a part of two NFL Network Oilers-related documentaries from their Football Life series. I thought the 93 Oilers doc was fantastic. Wasn't quite as happy with the Warren Mood documentary, but 
just curious as to what you, you thought of them and was there a story missing from either of these that you really wish was in there? The time restraints on the 93 Oilers prohibited so much. I spent about two hours with them telling them stories that they just didn't have time to get in because so much happened that season. So many is the wildest, most tumultuous season in the history of the NFL for one team. I used to challenge other media people, make that statement, and they go, oh, no, man, I had this happen and that happen. And I'd say, really? I'd say, well, here's what we had happen that year. And then they go, wow, no, I can't beat that. It's almost like you're playing poker. So they really needed at least two hours to do that. And as far as the moon, I did an interview with them. They came in here. They interviewed me in, uh, uh, during training camp. And uh, they interviewed, I'm, I guess they interviewed a lot of people. And, and when you think about everything that goes into one of those things, they spend a lot of time and effort and money traveling around the country interviewing people. And so I'm guessing, actually I know a bunch of people they interviewed that never made the finished product, but they have a problem with it. No, I didn't have a problem with it. Did you in, uh, enjoy the 93 documentary overall, what they could include? That was such a fun season. No, I wouldn't have had anything. That was such a fun season. I'd forgotten a lot of it, even though I covered it. And uh, what I mainly liked was seeing people now being interviewed about then, uh, about their memories memories of it, to see if it was the same as mine. And I learned some things I wish that I had known back then. I would have written about it that uh, popped up there. And I thought, damn, I wish, I wish I'd have known that. And also, uh, I remember how, from watching that documentary, how the offensive linemen still were angry at David Williams for not coming to New England and playing the game after they had a plane ready after his baby was born. So he still could have got on the plane and come to New England and played the game. But they won it. Uh, That was the game Warren Moon was benched and had to play when Cody Carlson got hurt. And Bob McNair, Bob McNair, excuse me, Bob Young, the offensive line coach, when he came out of the dressing room and compared David not being there to a soldier not wanting to go to war, staying home while his baby was born. And that created a national controversy that ended up with Vice President Albert Al Gore blasting Bob Young in speeches like he was a Neanderthal. And uh, that was a fun season for two reasons. They won and you had controversy every day. There was a different story every day. I wish, and I've told the NFL Network people this, the next one they should do, and I realize they don't want to have too many Oilers-related since the Oilers are not in business, but I told them, I said, if you guys do one during the Jerry Glanville era, you have more incredible stories on that one than you have in as many incredible stories on the Jerry Glanville era as you did on the 93 Oilers. And I threw a few of them out there at them, and so I'm hoping that uh, they do one on that. As far as I'm concerned, guys, they can't do too much on anything Oiler-related because I, I don't want the Oilers to die. 
And I used to tell Bud Adams, he was sitting on all, a whole warehouse of other stuff to give a lot to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame and Waco so people will remember the others because we don't have anything. So if we have to keep them alive on film uh, that's shown on NFL Network, then uh, that's that's a way to preserve the history and the tradition and and everything that that uh, that we cherished about that franchise uh, for all those decades. Sounds like the perfect way to end our Oilers special. We'd like to thank our guest for reliving all of those incredible memories for us. If this is the first time you've heard our show, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or download our free Houston Sports Talk Android app. Tell your friends about us, and we hope you'll make us a regular part of your week. Godspeed, bum. Because we're the Houston Oilers.